As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father, I pray that as we open this book that it, we, we will realize that it is your book. It is the book from which you speak. And everything that we find here is true for us to know and to believe. And so I pray that you'll help us. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to believe. Through this, I pray that you transform our lives and form Christ in us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open, please, your scriptures to Judges and chapter 3. I want to begin beginning uh, with verse 7 through verse 11. Judges chapter 3, verse 7, please. This is the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan. Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kishan Rishathaim in uh, eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. And he went out to war and the Lord gave Kishan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And the, and the hand prevailed over Kishon Rishathaim. So the land rested 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And then we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, I know it's been a week since I've been talking about judges, but, but if you can remember what we've already talked about in the introduction this event shouldn't surprise us. We've already been, been warned. The first couple of chapters lay out uh, an introduction to what's going to take place uh, in Israel. And we see there's going to be recurring, repeated cycles. And they go something like this. Well, exactly, really, as we have it here. Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. It angers the Lord. And he disciplines them, judges them. He brings enemies and captures them and they serve the enemy. After a while, they cry out because that becomes very difficult and the hardships are great. The misery increases and they cry out to the Lord. We're not always sure whether that's real repentance or they're just miserable, but they know to go to God at least and so they cry out to him. So then God hears them And he raises up a deliverer who comes and this deliverer called a judge defeats the enemy and rules over the people. And while he rules over the people, there's rest in the land, no hostility, no enemies in their camp, if you will, in their place. And then uh, the judge dies. Uh, And we'll see that over and over again. In this particular one, the Lord lays it out for us pretty uh, in, in detailed fashion. We won't all see all these steps in every situation, but in this one, he lays it out in this side. Now, leading this cycle always is the fact that Israel does evil 
in the sight of the Lord. This has two characteristics. I know I'm just jumping right into this. Okay? So just hang with me. (laughs) Two um, elements to it, this evil. One is forgetting the Lord. And the other is idolatry. Now they're related, they're really two sides of the same coin of, of evil. So what did it mean when the, when the scripture says that they forgot the Lord? Now forgetting and remembering in the scripture is a very sort of technical kind of uh, definition, understanding. Uh, often in the scripture we'll find things like, uh, expressions like, the Lord remembered his covenant. Now that doesn't mean he forgot it. That doesn't mean if, you know, one of the angels tapped the Lord on the shoulder in heaven and said, hey, do you remember the covenant? Oh, yeah, got it. He could detail it. But remembering the covenant meant that now he was going to do something. He was going to act in accordance with his promises. Uh, We find that expression in Exodus chapter 2, for instance, uh, as the people are crying out because they're in slavery in Egypt. They had been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. God had made covenant with Abraham uh, centuries before. And here they were. And all of a sudden we read the expression that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, again, it didn't mean he forgot it. It just means, okay, now is the time I'm going to act in a way that they'll see that I know this. And, And we also then pray... You can find this in the Psalms. You can find this in Isaiah. That God would not remember our sins. And when we're praying that he not remember our sins, we're praying that he does not treat us or act upon us according to our sins, as our sins deserve. I I think I read something this morning out of Psalm 103 as our assurance that he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Um, and that's a good thing. We want him to forget in that sense. Now, it's not forget, forget. He's God, right? And so yeah, he doesn't get this sort of lobotomy up there. Uh, he, he, but he doesn't act as our sins deserve. So... When we read that Israel forgot the Lord, it isn't necessarily that they couldn't pass a multiple choice test on who the Lord was. In fact, it could be, and we see this throughout Israel's history. We don't know it here because it's not expressly stated. But we see it in Israel's history that often they're going through all the motions. They're making sacrifice. Right? They're, they're observing various feasts even and so forth and so on. All the things that the Lord gives them to remember him, but they're doing it, but, 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 but they're cold hearted. It's not penetrating. They, they're just doing it, but they're not remembering the Lord. They're forgetting him. And so they're not acting on what they know to be true about him. That's forgetting the Lord. So the, flip side of forgetting the Lord is idolatry because we're no longer following the Lord he's no longer our ultimate he's not the one then directing our paths he's not the one defining our lives he's not our delight and so so now you see the flip side of forgetting him is idolatry we're remembering another God now, there was very tangible for them. They could, they had these fertility gods in Canaan, uh, for us, may not be quite as tangible in the sense that we don't have a figure of it. But, but we get it. We understand idolatry. We understand that we were not acting according uh, to what we know to be true about God. We're acting 
on the basis of something else. You remember, it was Jesus who said, you can't serve two masters. You love the one and hate the other. You can't serve both God and money, really. Wealth, mammon, stuff. And then you say, well, how do we serve money? <laughs> we trust it. We trust that it will make us happy. We trust that it will give us life, really. And we're trusting an idol. We're trusting something, someone other than God. We're trusting that worshiping, really, serving. In the Old Testament, serve and worship go together. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. That is, worship him with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. It's a worship word, serving. And so when you serve money or anything else, whether it's possessions or your job or whether it's security or whatever it is that your family or, or sexuality, whatever it is that, that drives you, that you worship, you're trusting it. You're serving it. Now, the problem is that every God, little g, other than God, big G, takes. Takes from us. Demands from us. And when we can't give it anymore, it stops. Because it's dependent on us, not us dependent on it. So in order to get money, we have to sacrifice a lot. We might have to sacrifice our family. We might have to sacrifice time. We might have to uh, sacrifice our health. Uh, all kinds of things people sacrifice for serving money. And when we stop doing it, it just, it's, it just kicks us to the curb. How do we serve God? We trust him. We serve God just like we serve money. That is, we trust him. We trust him for life. We say, if if I trust you and and live according to your ways, then I'll have life. But the difference, you see, is God doesn't need us. We're not serving him like we're giving him something that he doesn't have. He's everything. God's completely content. So we serve him By listening to him. We serve him by going to his word and saying, teach me, tell me how I'm to live. We, we serve him by praying, that is casting our dependence upon him. I've shared this verse before, but I think of it almost every day, I suppose. Psalm 8110. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I'll fill it. That's how we serve him. We serve him with our mouths open wide. Because we don't have anything we can give to him. And we say, but you have everything to give to us. The way that we serve you is to open our mouths, our mouths wide. I, I remember when sometimes if our kids have been to the dentist and they come back sometimes, this is probably not so much in modern dentist, dentistry, but uh, maybe in my childhood even, you'd come back and you're, you'd have little cracks right here because you had to keep your mouth open so long, you know. <laughs> I think that should be the way we look spiritually to God. We should look at each other and we should have little, you know, little tears in our, in our mouths right there. Because our mouths have been opened so wide to be able to... That's how we serve him. We, we go to him in prayer and we say, help me. I, I need you. We, we serve him in our obedience. Because what we're saying in our obedience is, God, we trust you. This is life to us. Anything else is destructive to our souls. But the way we serve you is, is by obeying you. 
by following all of your commands. We trust you. And that really does bring life. We serve him as we worship him, as we give him thanks. That's serving him. But when we forget him, we don't listen. When we forget him, we don't pray. When we forget him, we don't obey. But rather we are acting according to another. We listen to the other. We pray to the other. We obey the other, do what it says. Israel was at a place where they were serving another, forgetting God. So what did God do? Well, this says that his anger was kindled um, <clears throat> against Israel, that he was, he was angry. And again, we, when we think about God being angry, we mustn't think about him as a, as a child throwing a tenter, temper tantrum because he's not getting enough attention. That, that isn't it at all. He's angry, first of all, righteously because he's God and he made us where he is, first of all. And we don't follow him. Don't serve him in the sense that I just mentioned. Then he has a right. It's just for him to be angry. And for Israel in particular. Because he had, he had made covenant with them. He had made great promises to them. He had delivered them. He had, he had saved them from, the, from Pharaoh's army by opening the Red Sea. He had fed them. He had given them this land. And so in a sense God could say, I've proven myself to you. You should obey me. You should serve me. You should worship me. That's why leading up to the Ten Commandments is, the, is that expression. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now have no other gods before me. In other words, look at who I am. Why would you worship anyone else? Why would you seek anyone else? And so he says, he says this, is, this, is, this is it. And so his anger, first and foremost, uh, is, is righteous. And, and also, it comes because obeying him is not a burden, but it's our joy. Uh, John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, the commands of the Lord are not burdensome. He doesn't tell us these things to burden our lives. He says, live like this because this is real life. Live like this because this is your joy. And, and, and we get it. I mean, can you imagine a society in which everyone loved as God commands to love? Everyone was as compassionate as God com- commands compassion or as kind as God as God commands kindness or as forgiving as God commands forgiveness or, or as truthful as God demands truthfulness, you see. We, we know what happens in relationships when there's unfaithfulness, when there's impurity, when there's immorality, when uh, there's uh, lies and slander and so forth. We know what happens in the context of that that always brings misery. And yet, somehow we think God's commands are burdensome, whereas his commands are life-giving. And so, so you can only imagine, I mean, if you're a parent, you get this, uh, you see your kids misbehaving. There is real anger, righteously so, because you're the parent, they're the kid. Secondly, you, you realize, too, that the commands are good for them to live. This... Self-destructive behavior brings anger. Ralph Davis uh, passed away recently. Um, 
was at our church a number of years ago in the late 90s and did a whole presentation of the overview of the Old Testament. Anyway, it's a nice little commentary on, on Judges. He puts it like this. He said, yet even here in Yahweh's anger, God's anger, is hope for Israel. For his anger shows that he will not allow Israel to serve Baal unmolested. Yahweh's wrath is the heat of his jealous love by which he refuses to let go of his people. He refuses to allow his people to remain comfortable in sin. Serving Kushan Rishathaim may not sound like salvation to us, and it isn't, but it forces us to lose our grip on Baal or our idols, and it may be the beginning of salvation. We must confess that God's anger is not good news, nor is it bad news, but good bad news. It shows that the covenant God who has bound himself to his people, will not allow them to become cozy in their infidelity. Steadfast love pursues them in their iniquity and is not above inflicting misery in order to awaken them. The burning anger of God is certainly no picnic, but it may be the only sign of hope for God's people, even though they may yet be unaware of that fact. The discipline of God. And it's perfect because it's God. Our anger doesn't always lead to perfect discipline, but his anger always, always does. Charles Spurgeon, preacher of a couple of centuries ago now, um, put it like this. He said, God never allows his people to sin successfully. Their sin will either destroy them will invite the chastening hand of God, his steadfast love. That good, bad news, as Davis puts it. Um, so then next, we'll get to some good news in a minute. Next, he raises up the enemy. He sells him into slavery. In other words, he says, all right, if you're not going to follow me, then, then all right, I'll let you try this out for size. You can live uh, under this slavery. Idols always enslave. And they always ultimately suck the very life out of us. And so God gives them that experience. And we know that not every bad thing that happens to us in our life uh, is God's chastening hand against us. You know, tests come. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And, and generally, when we're going through something difficult, it's almost impossible at times to tell whether this is related to something particular in our lives or just the way it goes, that God is testing us and God is trying us and God is working in us. But we know his intention, as it was here, his intention was to bring good ultimately. His intention was is always to, to cause us to remember him, not forget him. And you may say, well, I wasn't forgetting him when this difficult thing happened. I get it. But it is an occasion to once again cast ourselves upon him. We read a few weeks ago from First, first Peter in chapter 1. That this testing of our faith is to purify it so that we can ultimately have assurance that we know that we belong to him. And James says that this testing of our faith, these difficulties that come into our lives are such that cause us to persevere so we can have assurance, so we can receive the good gifts of God. And so hear the same thing there. They cry out. 
to God. Uh, again, it's difficult to know because the text isn't um, explicit. Is this real repentance? That is, are they saying, we've sinned against you, God, now please forgive us and help us? Or are they just miserable? Uh, there's debate about the repentance or the crying out that takes place in the book of Judges. At times it seems like repentance, at times it doesn't. But God in his mercy, it's the amazing thing. That God in his mercy comes to them. And he raises up a deliverer. And in this case, he raises up this guy, Othniel, who um, you can go back in chapter 1 and read about. He was Caleb's brother. We're not sure exactly the relation there in terms of brother, whether they had the same mother, whether they had the same father. Uh, actually, they had different fathers, as we could tell. But, but his brother, and, and, and we realize in that uh, context, he was a noble man. You can read about that in Judges chapter 1. And so he'd be a guy we might expect, really, to be one of these judges. Later on, we're going to read about judges that come and we're going to say, why that guy? I mean, I wouldn't have chosen that guy. But in this case, it seems like here's a noble one, one that we would expect to come in and, and be the judge. So he raises up Othniel and he comes and he delivers the enemy into his hand. We don't know anything about the battle. We don't know exactly how that took place. We trust there was some kind of war that the Israelites under this uh, judge Othniel came and, and defeated uh, the enemy, but we don't really have any details there. But the operative expression is this one, that the spirit of the Lord was upon him. That the spirit of the Lord was upon him. And so we know that it was God at work in some way in the midst of that battle, defeating the enemy. The Israelites couldn't have done it without the Spirit of God leading them, directing them, rescuing them. This was the very work of God. Should again be no surprise as we read through the scripture, we hear expressions like the one in Zechariah. It's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit declares the Lord. Remember, God said he'd fight for his people. And, and, and when he did, he said, one of you can slay a thousand. And so we would expect and when the spirit of the Lord comes upon the one who leads the people of God into battle, that it may be that they were undermanned. It may be they were under chariot, under weaponed, chariot, it, it, it. No, it didn't work. Under weaponed. Uh, it may be that the enemy was stronger and all of that. But because the spirit of the Lord was involved, the Israelites prevailed and they were delivered out of the enemy's, out of the enemy's hands. That's our only hope, of course. That as we face the enemies of our souls, that the spirit of the Lord is upon us. And that's the promise. You know, remember that Jesus... When uh, he was leaving his disciples, he said, don't be afraid, I'll be with you. And I'll be with you because I'm sending another one like me who's the Holy Spirit. And he's going to come and bring the very presence of God to you and with you. And he will comfort you. That means he'll strengthen you, which means he'll be your fort. He'll be your fortifier. So that you can live in the midst of the tribulation of the world. And then Jesus makes that great promise to his disciples. Wait in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and empower you to be my witnesses. And we see that through the book of Acts. And Paul, when he comes to the church in Ephesus, he says, 
be filled with the Holy Spirit. He wasn't saying that because he was commanding something that was unusual. He said, no, this is usual. This is, this is, this is what you're to be like. You're to be filled with the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit of God who's to be working in you, controlling your life. Submit to all that the Spirit brings into your life by way of word by way of his gifts and power. So that when you face the enemy, you face him in the power of the Spirit. And of course, Paul has that wonderful expression that so um, describes his life, and I think ours as well in Colossians in chapter 1, verse 29. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, Here's my life. I toil. I serve, and I struggle because uh, it makes me sweat, makes me tired. But I do it with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And then if you ask Paul and you said, so, so does that mean you sort of glide along in life because the power of God is sustaining you? And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. When I, when I get beaten, it hurts. When I get thrown in jail and they don't feed me for a week, I'm hungry. Uh, when I walk from place to place and all the places I go, I get tired. When the enemies come against me and the, the persecutors come against me, it's real persecution and it's real pain. And I struggle and I get tired and all of that. But I know that all of this is because of what the Lord has done because I'm still here. And I still believe. And I'm still desirous of the work the Lord has called me to. He sustains me. And look at the results. Look at what happens. He really does. So I'm struggling with all his energy, this power of God. So we see it, evil, forgetting an idolatry. The Lord's anger... The enemy comes in slaves. The people cry out. God sends a deliverer. He delivers them. There's rest. There's rest from the enemies. So here's the question. Is there anything we can do proactively so that we don't forget the Lord? So that we don't end up in the same situation in which they found themselves? And the answer is, of course, there is. As the Spirit is upon us to help us. I, I read a passage earlier in the morning from Second Peter in chapter 1. Turn there for just a second, please. Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten. There in uh, verse 12, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it's right as long as I'm in this body to stir up, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And so what Peter is saying is, I don't have much time with you. I'm going to die soon. The Lord has made that known. 
And so I want to write this letter to remind you so that you won't forget. And I read Judges and I said, this is exactly what I need. I need somebody to remind me so that I don't forget. And so what's he reminding them of? What, what, what are they not to forget? Well, verse 9, he says, Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In other words, Peter is saying exactly the same thing to us as an Old Testament prophet would say to ancient Israel. Don't forget the deliverance. Don't forget what God has done. If you forget, for them, Egypt, you've forgotten everything. So don't forget you've been cleansed. Don't forget what Christ has done. Because you see, what Peter's after, what God is after for us, is that uh, we will uh, grow in our knowledge of, of him. Notice verse 3. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. You see, we're to bear fruit consistent with this knowledge of God. We're to remember God and act accordingly. We're to remember what God has done and act like it. We're to remember what God has done and our behavior, our thoughts and our behaviors should reflect that we're remembering what he did. People should look at our lives and go, oh, I see what Jesus did. And so he says, don't forget what Jesus did because I want you to bear fruit that's consistent with knowing him. And if you're not doing that, it means you've forgotten him. Well, what are we to remember? We remember on the one hand that we've, through these promises, become partakers of the divine nature. Now, that doesn't mean that we have become God. We're not like Jesus, that we're God, man, and all that. But when Peter says we become partakers of the divine nature, what he's referring to is that we're now being renewed in the image of God. We started out created in the image of God that was marred by sin. Now Christ has come to renew that image of God in us so that our lives would reflect him. And so he says, you become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. In other words, sinful desires corrupt, but because of the work of Christ, he's broken those in our lives. Oh, they still live and all that but they no longer dominate our lives. He says, this is what's happened. This is what happened when you were cleansed. And so he says, if you forget this, what happens is it become nearsighted, which means you can only see what's in front of you. You won't see what took place and you won't see what's to come. You can only see this. And what happened to ancient Israel is they went into the land, all they saw were these enemies. And they saw the gods of these enemies, and it made sense to them, because they forgot God, it made sense to them as, we'll live as they live, they seem to be doing fine. And the 
The Lord comes and says, no, 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 no. Don't you remember who you are? Your mind. Don't you remember me and the power that I have? Expel the enemies for us. Expel the enemies of your soul. Why? Because Christ has conquered them. So expel the enemies of your soul. Don't, Don't live remembering them. Live remembering what Christ has done. Don't be nearsighted. Sometimes we, we have a situation, we look at it, we forget the Lord. We think this is all that is. I'm all that's here. I'm the only one that can solve this. And, 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 and the Lord says, don't forget who I am. Don't forget what I've done. I know the temptation seems really strong at the moment, but don't forget what I've done. I've broken its power. I've cleansed you from it. Now trust me and live. Trust me and obey. I will help you. We get so nearsighted that we don't see the end result. For them, they they began probably, I suppose, like most human beings uh, begin in sin. It just sort of happens gradually. Once talked to a shepherd, a real shepherd, and I say, I I ask him, I said, you know, I, I read in the Bible all the time where sheep keep getting lost. How does that happen? And he said, oh, they just nibbled themselves lost. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, they just go here and it's green and go here and it's green and go here and it's green. And pretty soon they're way out there. And I said, you think that's like us? And he just smiled. Of course it's like us. Very often, it isn't like we just jump from here all the way to there. It's that we just nibble our way, just these little things. And we're so nearsighted, we don't see where that's headed. We're so nearsighted, we think, oh, oh, this isn't going to go anywhere. I'll be fine. I can hang out here for a while. But then pretty soon, I can find out here for a while. Then pretty soon, I can hang out here. And pretty soon, we're really out there. And we look, and we say, how did that happen? That's the danger, you see. We get nearsighted. How do, we, how do we keep from becoming nearsighted? How do we keep from forgetting the Lord? Well, he says, remember what uh, Christ has done. He's cleansed you from your sins. He's, he's, he's enabled you to partake of, of the image of God again. And it's being restored in you in a deep and profound way. And he's, 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 he's rescued from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. So then act like it. So he says, supplement your faith. That is to say, you have faith. This will be consistent with it. Virtue, that is, in your behavior with each other, live in a way that's virtuous, that's godly. Knowledge, allow that which is true about God, and he speaks to us to inform our lives and control us. Self-control, fruit of the Spirit that enables us not to respond as others would perhaps provoke us to respond or situations would provoke us to respond, but respond in a way that's godly. Steadfastness, keep doing it. Godliness, reflect God. Brotherly affection, that it would come from, from the heart. That's what we're to do. We're to remember the Lord. The way the Apostle Paul puts it is in Second Corinthians and chapter five, verse fourteen. He says, For the love of God controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. 
And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I think Paul had going through his mind all the time. When I sin, I've just wasted the cross. I've just wasted what Christ has done. And so he remembered what Christ has done. And he said, oh, yes. Why wouldn't I trust him? And that was God's plea so often to Israel. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Why would you have any other gods who can do that for you? Look what I've done. Don't you believe I love you? And Paul would think of Jesus and say, oh, yes. Why wouldn't I trust the one who gave his son for me? Now, this passage ends by saying, then Othniel, the son of Kenez, died. Now, without turning the page, that would probably strike you deeply. And you're thinking, now what? If you'd read the introduction, you'd know now what. And you go, oh no, he died. Now, here we go again through all of this. And, and I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to go through this over and over and over and over. Isn't there some, some help here? And, and there is. And here's the help. The help is this. That the prophet Isaiah spoke of the Messiah who was to come. And he said, the spirit of the Lord will be upon him. And when Jesus was baptized, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And led him. And then one day he went into the synagogue. And he, he, he walked up and he began to read. He opened the scrolls to the passage in Isaiah. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Oh, yes. The real deliverer has come. <laughs> the real judge, if you will, in that sense has come. The real rescuer has come. And he lives. And as long as he lives... We're safe. As long as he lives, we can enjoy his rest. And so, overarching all of this, all the little details, all the little difficulties, all of this and all of that, overarching all of this for us is the fact that he lives. And he lives, the scripture says, to make intercession for us, that is to constantly defend us. So that our salvation will be complete. We needn't fear. Let's pray. Father, pray for us. That we wouldn't be nearsighted. That we wouldn't forget you. That we would take care of every, take advantage of every opportunity to remember you by worshiping together regularly every week, remembering you, by reading the scriptures, by praying, by obeying, remembering you. We wouldn't forget. And we wouldn't get to that point where we would nibble our way into deep difficulty. But rather each test as they come, each reminder of the danger, 
would enable us to remember you and what Christ has done and then God to act accordingly to follow you to add to our faith all the things all the qualities that are consistent with who you are and what you've done please help us there are many on this day that are going through real deep difficulties palatable ones ones that they can feel and touch ones they can see the imprint of them in their lives and so I pray that where there has been sin you will grant forgiveness where there is breach in relationship that you would restore where there is physical need and want that you would supply and heal that Father at the end of the day we would know that your spirit is upon us and we would know that Jesus lives and this I pray in Jesus name